Our scripture reading this morning is from the Gospel of Luke, chapter 1, verses 1 through 25. Luke 1, 1 through 25. If you uh, want to grab a pew Bible, that's on page 855, 855 in the pew Bible. Also, if you're a guest with us and you don't have a Bible of your own, um, we would love for you to take one of those pew Bibles home with you as a gift from us. We'd love for you to have a Bible. So hear God's word. Inasmuch as I have, as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word have delivered them to us, it seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely from some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, that you may have certainty concerning the things that you have been taught In the days of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah of the division of Abijah. And he had had a wife from the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. And they were both righteous before God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and statutes of the Lord. But they had no children, because Elizabeth was barren, and were both advanced in years." Now, while he was serving as a priest before God when his division was on duty, according to the custom of the priesthood, Zechariah was chosen by lot to enter the temple of the Lord and burn incense. And the whole multitude of the people were praying outside at that hour of incense. And there appeared to him an angel of the Lord standing on the right side of the altar of incense. And Zechariah was troubled when he saw him, and fear fell upon him. But the angel of the Lord said to him, Do not be afraid, Zechariah, for your prayer has been heard, and your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you will call his name John. And you will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth, for he will be great before the Lord, and he must not drink wine or strong drink, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit even from his mother's womb. And he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God, and he will go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just, to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. And Zechariah said to the angel, How shall I know this? For I am an old man, and my wife is advanced in years. And the angel said to him, I am Gabriel, and I stand before the presence of God. And I was sent to speak to you and bring you this good news. And behold, you will be silent and unable to speak until the day that these things take place because you did not believe my words, which will be fulfilled in their time. And the people were waiting for Zechariah and they were wondering at his delay in the temple. And when he came out, he was unable to speak to them. And they realized that he had seen a vision in the temple and he kept making signs to them and remained mute. And when his time of service had ended, he went to his home. And after these days, his wife Elizabeth conceived, and for five months she kept herself hidden, saying, Thus the Lord has done for me in the days when he looked upon me to take away my reproach among the people. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, good morning. 
As Bill said, my name is Paul Brandis, and I have the privilege of serving the Brookside campus of Christ Community as an associate pastor in the fellowship program, and I want to add my welcome to his, and I especially this morning want to welcome a group of students who uh, are sometimes, but not often with us, the elementary students. Students and and children are always welcome in our Sunday services, but a few times a year, typically on our fifth uh, Sundays, when there is a fifth Sunday in a month, we invite the elementary students to join us in worship upstairs, and so I want to extend a a special welcome to them and remind all of us, all children and and those of us that are kids at heart, about our Kid Connect. Uh, Dave Legue does a great job, our children's ministry director, of putting this together every week. has a, usually a word search or a maze of some sort, and it also has fill-in-the-blanks to help the, the children or the students follow along with the sermon, and they're right in the back center off to my right. And so if you're uh, a kid, um, feel free to jump up if it's okay with your mom and dad and grab one of these if you'd like to follow along. Well, one of the things that I get to do here at the Brookside Campus of Christ Community, I've said this oftentimes being up front, is work with our students. And I wanted to add just one more announcement to the ones that that Bill gave in that uh, next Sunday, December 7th, in the afternoon, the Michael Card concert, um, um, and that's two weeks, um, but... Uh, next Sunday, December 7th, um, uh, we're going to have a student ministries Christmas party. We've uh, done our gatherings, our student ministries gatherings on Sunday evenings. We're going to do this Christmas fiesta for our students right after church, and it's a fiesta because we're catering the food from Chipotle. And uh, so all students from 6th through 12th grade are invited to hang out afterwards. We'll go from about 11.30 to 1.30 or so, and um, if you have an ugly sweater, go ahead and wear that. And we're also going to be doing uh, an inexpensive white elephant gift exchange. So so bring along a gift, and and we hope to see all students there. Well, as John mentioned, today is Advent. It marks the beginning of the Advent season. Christmas is upon us. Isn't that always how it works? Thanksgiving ends, and then we we haven't even shut that door before we open the Christmas one. Uh, And the word Advent simply means coming. During Advent, we have the opportunity and are, in fact, called to celebrate the fact that Jesus has already come to save us from our sins. And we have the opportunity to anticipate that he will one day come again to make all things new. Celebrate and anticipate. Well, this Advent season, we're going to be taking a journey through the book of Luke, the first two chapters. Our 2014 sermon series for Advent is entitled, as you can see, What a Strange Way to Save the World. And hopefully, as we examine the stories surrounding Jesus' first Advent, his first coming, his, his birth, hopefully we will examine them with fresh eyes. And hopefully we will also see how consistently surprising God is in his work. Well, the book of Luke was written by, that's right, you guessed it, someone named Luke. He was the only non-Jewish person to write one of the four gospels that we have in, in our Bible that are about Jesus. And he was a medical doctor by trade. And as he says in his introduction, his first four verses, he was a historian by hobby. Luke traveled with the Apostle Paul for a few of his missionary journeys, and he's also responsible for writing the book of Acts. If you read the beginning of Luke and the beginning of Acts, you'll see that their introductions are very similar, and Luke actually meant for them to be probably read as one volume. In the introduction to his gospel, which Bill read just a couple minutes ago, Luke gives the purpose for his writing. 
That's how any good person starts off a a book or a novel, isn't it? Why why am I writing this? Essentially what Luke says in verses 1 through 4 is this. I've studied widely and deeply about Jesus, talking with people who saw these events with their own two eyes. And I've read everything about Jesus that I could get my hands on. And after even all that, I decided that it was still important and good for me to also write an ordered account of Jesus' life. It is so significant that Luke roots the stories that he is about to tell in history, in eyewitness testimony. The stories in Luke's gospel aren't fairy tales or even those, you've seen those movies, right, where it says at the beginning, based on a true story? The, the gospel of Luke is much more than that. It's not just based on a true story. It is a true story. These are facts. The stories, they really happen. And Luke, he talked to the people who saw them take place. History is so important to Christianity. We even see this in the fact that the book of Luke was originally written to a man named Theophilus. Most likely, Theophilus was a new Christian who needed to be established and rooted in his faith. In his faith. A real person, just like you and I, who's trying to love and follow God well. Again, the stories in Luke's gospel, the ones that we're going to examine in the next few weeks, they aren't fairy tales or fables. They really happen. They are rooted in history. Keep that in mind as we go on this journey together. And would you pray with me as we begin that journey? Let's bow our heads and go before the Lord. Dear Father, we need you. I need you. We cannot do this without you. I cannot do this without you, Lord. Thank you for giving us the book of Luke. As we open its pages now, I pray that you would speak through me, that I would diminish as you increase, and that your name would be brought high, and you would receive all the honor and glory which you deserve. In your holy and precious name we pray. Amen. When I was in sixth grade growing up, I was finally old enough to go on my youth group's winter retreat. And I was so excited to spend the weekend with all of my friends, snow tubing and ice skating and playing this really violent game called Animal Ball, which is also incredibly awesome. I'd heard about it growing up, and I was eagerly anticipating this opportunity. I was pumped. And we drive four hours north. I grew up north of Chicago, which gets a lot of snow, but we always wanted to guarantee that we were going to have snow. And so we drive north of Green Bay, and, and we get there, we arrive, and it's Friday night, and, and we're settling into our cabins. And our youth pastor, Brando, uh, we called him Brando. His parents didn't name him Brando. It was Brandon. We cut off the end. But our youth pastor named him Brando. He was out doing rounds, making sure that everybody was settled into their cabins. And we were getting settled into ours. And, and you've seen these cabins, right? Uh, at these camps, they have long bunk beds on either side. And there's this big open area in the middle. And uh, all of a sudden, one of the small group leaders, he was a, a college student, which is going to be relevant in a second here, because only a college student would have this idea, but he tosses his mattress off of his bed into the middle of the open area. We're like, what is he doing? And he looks up at the ceiling and he yells, WrestleMania! 
And that was all it took. I mean, we followed suit, right? We chucked our mattresses into the middle of the open area, and within seconds, there was really unsafe chaos going on. A bunch of sixth through eighth grade boys wrestling in the middle, almost hitting their heads on the bunk beds. It was, it was madness and chaos and a lot of fun. And all of a sudden, the door swung open, and there was Brando, the reckoning. <laughs> I mean, we knew what was going to happen, right? I mean, this was way out of bounds, and the, the, the room just fell totally silent. Isn't that crazy when, when a room is just crazy and chaotic and it falls silent just like that? I mean, it's just deafening. We knew what was coming. But then something unexpected happened. Brandon, Brando dropped his bag, stepped into the middle of the room and said, all right, who am I taking on? And once again, we cheered and joined in as the person that we thought was going to give us punishment actually joined in with us to have a good time. I'm not sure if he should have done that, but he did. (laughs) It was surprising and it was unexpected. None of us saw it coming. We all have stories like that, right? I mean, maybe they don't uh, have the same level of danger or threat or chance of going to the hospital, but I'm willing to bet that all of us have had times in our past where we could retell of a time where we were unexpected. Something unexpected happened. Something that caught us off guard, something that was surprising that we didn't see coming. We all have moments like that. And you know, these moments, they take place in the Bible as well. As we turn the pages of Scripture, we see over and over again people who are consistently surprised by the ways in which God chooses to work and act. And over time, I've come to realize this. I've come to realize that God is consistently surprising. God consistently acts in surprising ways. He consistently acts in surprising ways. And today, the first story in the book of Luke reveals a character who had to learn this lesson the hard way. He wasn't ready for God to act in a surprising way. In fact, this character had stopped expecting God to act at all. His name was Zechariah, and we meet him in verse 5 of Luke 1. Follow along with me as I read that verse again. In the days of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah of the division of Abijah, and he had a wife from the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. Zechariah was a priest. In a lot of ways, this made him like a pastor. He would go to the temple, the Jewish house of worship, and he would lead services. His wife, Elizabeth, she also came from a long line of priests. And Luke even tells us, as verse 6 says, that they were righteous before God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and statutes of the Lord. Now, this blamelessness that Elizabeth and Zechariah possessed, it doesn't equal perfection. Zechariah and Elizabeth weren't perfect, but they were following the Lord faithfully. And even though they were blameless and faithful in the Lord's sight, they were still without children. Elizabeth being barren, as Luke tells us she was in verse 7. For us today, the inability to have children is still incredibly difficult. There are many couples who struggle for years trying to conceive and have a child and sometimes are never successful. I'm convinced that barrenness or 
struggling with infertility is one of the most difficult roads to walk. And I think that it's a road that you can't even fully understand unless you've walked it yourself. It's an incredible mountain to climb. And we see here in Luke 1 that this isn't just a modern problem. Men and women just like us have struggled with this for centuries. And in fact, in Zechariah and Elizabeth's time, there is an added layer of complexity. Because you see, the widespread belief at this time was that the amount of children you had was directly linked to your standing with God. So in other words, if you had many children, then you were in God's favor. But if you were barren and couldn't conceive like Zechariah and Elizabeth, then you must have done something terribly, terribly wrong. This meant that Zechariah and Elizabeth were social outcasts in their community, bearing the judgment of people who thought that they were in God's cosmic doghouse. And at the time of this story, they are, as Luke says at the end of verse 7, advanced in years. That's a nice way to put that, isn't it? Zechariah and Elizabeth were well past the normal childbearing years. At this point, if they were going to have a child... It was going to be a strange and unexpected surprise. In verses 8 through 10 of Luke 1, we're introduced to Zechariah at work. Luke tells us that Zechariah's division was on duty. At this point in Israel's history, there were a lot of priests. There were so many that they didn't need to all work in the temple at all times. Each division would take a two-week shift once during the year, and then they would return to their homes, and they would actually work other jobs. But at this time, Zechariah's division is on duty, and Luke, he tells us that that Zechariah is chosen to enter the temple of the Lord and burn incense. Now, this is a, a really big deal because a priest was only chosen once in his lifetime for this task. This was the one time that Zechariah was going to be able to do this. And while it was a a once-in-a-lifetime task, it was actually also a fairly simple one. Essentially, what Zechariah was supposed to do was lead the evening prayer. He was to go into the holy place, which was a a part of the temple where only the priests were allowed. He was to, to burn incense and then pray on behalf of the people of Israel as their representative. This prayer was supposed to be fairly short in length, and then he would come out and he would bless the crowd. And Luke tells us in verse 10 that a crowd, a multitude of people had gathered, and Zechariah's final marching order would have been to come out and bless that crowd after his short time in the holy place. It's simple, right? Well, maybe most of the time, but not with a consistently surprising God on the move. Now, let me read for us again verses 11 and 12 of our passage. And there appeared to Zechariah an angel of the Lord standing on the right side of the altar of incense. And Zechariah was troubled when he saw him, and fear fell upon him. Has anyone ever jumped out at you from a hiding place? It's always the dads that do this, right? It's never the mom that decides it's a great idea to hide and terrify their children. Uh, Whenever people do this to me, I'll be the first to admit, I get incredibly startled. I mean, I may even scream in a very high-pitched voice. I I mean, who's to say, right? I mean, I don't know if that actually happens, but it may, it may. Uh, But here, in verses 11 through 12, it moves beyond that. 
I mean, this isn't just a, a bad parenting move, someone jumping out from a closet to surprise a child. This is an angel of the Lord. And Zechariah is not simply startled. The text says that fear fell upon him. Other translations probably say fear consumed him. But quite literally, fear fell upon him. And angels, well, they were used to this, right? I mean, if you've, if you've read the Bible and any, any chance that you've seen uh, angels appear at other, other spots in Scripture, they were used to this, right? They were used to fear falling upon people. And so the angel, when he begins his conversation in verse 13, he starts it as almost all angels in the Bible do. Do not be afraid, Zechariah. Do not be afraid. Why? For your prayer has been heard. And your wife, Elizabeth, will bear you a son, and you shall call his name John. Do not be afraid, Zechariah, the angel says. I come with good news. Your prayer has been answered. You will have a child. But that's not all, is it? No, the angel continues on in verse 14. And you will have joy and gladness. And many will rejoice. Don't be afraid. Rejoice. Many will rejoice at his birth. Verse 15. For this son, your son, will be great before the Lord. Great before the Lord. Jump with me to verse 16. And your son, he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God. And he will go before the Lord in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children. And the disobedient to the wisdom of the just. To make ready for the Lord a people prepared. Well then, is that all? To try to put yourself with me in Zechariah's position. An angel has just come to you, an elderly man, and told you that you and your elderly wife will soon have a child. And not only that, but this child will be great before the Lord and will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord your God. How might you have responded if you were Zechariah? I think that my response would have mirrored his, would have been exactly the same. In verse 18, he says this to the angel, How shall I know this? For I am an old man and my wife is advanced in years. It's just a clarifying question, right? I mean, that seems pretty fair and reasonable, right? Well, apparently not. Verse 19, the angel says, I am Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God, and I was sent to speak to you and to bring you this good news. And behold, you will be silent and unable to speak until the day that these things take place because you did not believe my words. That's quite the punishment, isn't it? Nine months of silence just for asking a clarifying follow-up question? What in the world is going on here? Why did Zechariah receive such a harsh punishment? Well, the simple answer is that Zechariah, the priest, should have known better. To be a priest, Zechariah would have known his Bible, the Old Testament, really well. And so Zechariah should have known that while God works in surprising ways, like giving children to people who are past their childbearing years, 
God also works in consistent ways. Remember, the God that Zechariah worshipped and the God that we worship is a consistently surprising God. Isaac, one of the fathers of the nation of Israel, was born to barren and elderly Sarah. And Jacob and Esau, Isaac's own sons, were born to barren Rebekah. And Samuel, one of the most important prophets in Israel's history, was born to barren and elderly Hannah. Over and over again in the past, God had proved that this was his consistently surprising pattern, one of the ways in which he likes to work. And yet, as Gabriel tells us, Zechariah totally missed it. He totally missed it. He didn't believe the angel's words because he wasn't ready for God to act. Zechariah wasn't ready for God to show up in his life in a surprising way. And it actually gets a bit worse because, you see, not only did Zechariah miss that God was breaking into his life and his wife's life in this surprising way, he also missed the bigger picture of what God was doing. The bigger way in which God was moving and the bigger thing in which God was doing. If you would, flip back with me a couple books of the Bible. If you have your Bibles open to the book of Malachi. Malachi is the last book of the Old Testament. It's right before Matthew. Malachi was the last prophet of the Old Testament. He lived about 400 years before Jesus came. And his message from God was the last one for those 400 years. Think about that with me for a second. Since Moses, God had consistently and constantly spoken to his people through prophets. And now, after Malachi, nothing but radio silence for 400 years. Well, what's the last thing then that Malachi says on behalf of God? We're in Malachi chapter 4, verse 5. What's the last thing that God says to his people through the prophet Malachi? Behold, I will send you Elijah, the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And he will turn the hearts of fathers to their children and the hearts of children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. After this, after this message to the prophet Malachi, we get 400 years of silence, the intertestamental period where God doesn't speak to his people. And then the very next person after Malachi to speak on behalf of the Lord is none other than Gabriel standing in the temple with Zechariah. Do you see what's happening here? What does Zechariah say? He says, remember how God promised to send Elijah as a sign that the next big chapter in his plan of salvation was about to begin? Zechariah, that's happening right now, and it's going to be your son, John the Baptist. I mean, just compare these two passages with me. And he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God, and he will go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children. That's Luke. That's what Gabriel says after 400 years of silence. And behold, in Malachi 4, I will send you Elijah the prophet, and he will turn the hearts of fathers to their children. We can't miss what's going on here. 
The textual similarities are overwhelming. The return of Elijah was the main sign the people of Israel were waiting for. The main sign before the great and awesome day of the Lord was to come. And John the Baptist is that sign. John the Baptist, the son of elderly Baron and Zechariah and Elizabeth, is the marker that God is turning the page on his great and awesome plan of salvation. Gabriel says to Zechariah, in this time, right now, God is at work in surprising and unexpected ways. He is going to send his Savior, Jesus, and your son, John, is going to be the one who prepares God's people for him. Finally, God is at work. After 400 years of silence, he is on the move. He is coming to save his people. And in just nine short months, the one who will prepare the way of the Lord will be born, John the Baptist. This is the message, this is the vision that Zechariah receives in the temple. He's the only one that knows about it. And he can't say a word. That's interesting, isn't it? A bit strange and surprising, isn't it? After 400 years of silence, the sign that God gives is more silence. After 400 years of silence, the sign that God gives is more silence. But again, God works in consistently surprising ways, doesn't he? But I think it does beg the question, why silence? It seems counterintuitive and backwards, doesn't it? I mean, if I was trying to get a message out, I don't think I would choose to mute my messenger. But that's exactly what God does. Look with me at verses 21 and 22, back in the book of Luke. And the people were waiting for Zechariah, and they were wondering at his delay in the temple. And when he came out, he was unable to speak to them, and they realized that he had seen a vision in the temple, and he kept making signs to them and remained mute. What do you think would have happened if Zechariah had been able to speak to the crowd? If he had been able to talk? Remember, he was only supposed to be in the temple a short while, and the crowd, they were wondering at his delay, what's he doing in there? If Zechariah had been able to speak to the crowd, I think that he would have shrunk the magnitude of the moment. Remember, this just wasn't any vision that Zechariah had received. This was the vision, the message that God was breaking in again and preparing to send his Savior to the world, his son Jesus. Well, can't you just see Zechariah coming out to the crowd? Oh, sorry about that. My bad, didn't mean to be in there so long. You know, I was talking with Gabriel, and you're not going to believe this. I certainly didn't. But Elizabeth and I, we're going to have a baby. Oh, and yeah, that baby, he's going to turn many of your hearts back to God because you've started to stray. I mean, really? And listen, I'm not trying to be hard on Zechariah. That's exactly what I would have done, right? If I had been in uh, the temple, if I had been Zechariah, I would have, I would have balked. I wouldn't have believed the angel's words, and I would have come out and my, my explanation to the crowd would have been totally lame and self-justifying. I can raise my hand and say, I know that I would have shrunk the magnitude of the moment. 
So you see God's discipline, his striking Zechariah silent, it gets at the root of the problem. The best discipline tactics always do. And remember, Zechariah should have known better. He was a priest, someone who was supposed to expect God to act in surprising ways. But it seems as though Zechariah's routine wasn't serving him well. Zechariah was in a rut, and he was totally unprepared for God to show up and begin a new work. Listen to how one scholar puts it. One senses that Zechariah needed a fresh lesson of faith to avoid such a slow-motion spiritual fall. The fact that Zechariah had doubted the angel's word meant he was already at risk. What God promises, he will perform. Only he will do it in his time and sometimes in surprising ways. So God decides to break up Zechariah's routine. God decides to liberate him from his rut with silence. He gives Zechariah a chance to slow down and think about what has happened, to reflect on who he is and what he will do by sending his son, Jesus. Zechariah had stopped expecting God to act. He wasn't ready for him. This morning, let me ask you a question. Have you stopped expecting God to act? Have you stopped expecting God to act? Maybe you're stuck in your own rut, much like Zechariah. You've been faithful, following the Lord for a long time, but slowly you've forgotten that God is a surprising God who loves to break in and work in unexpected ways. Maybe you've been praying for a friend or family member for years. You know, I think it's interesting, I found this fascinating, that in verse 13, Gabriel tells Zechariah that his prayer had been answered. It seems as though Zechariah hadn't ever stopped praying for him and Elizabeth to have children. It was only that he had stopped believing that God could make that come true. That was fascinating and very convicting for me. It wasn't that he had stopped praying, it was that he had stopped expecting God to show up and work and move in a surprising way. Is that you? Have you stopped expecting God to act? Maybe that person that you're praying for and have been praying for just hasn't found God yet. Or maybe it's not a person but a situation. Work isn't what we want it to be or our family isn't as close as we desire or abortion is still a reality or God hasn't stopped Ebola yet. Whatever it is, maybe it's been months or years, or even decades. Have you stopped expecting God to act? I think this question is especially relevant for those of us who have lived through a number of Christmases. You know, as I said, today marks the beginning of Advent, the start of Christmas, and we're about to enter into a season that's not so much about celebrating Jesus' coming and anticipate his coming again, but it's about something different. The word that I would use to describe the Christmas season is busy. 
Does that resonate? We're about to enter into decorating, shopping for gifts, traveling to or hosting large groups of family and friends, of navigating the joys of winter weather, hear the sarcasm there, and finishing up our year at work or school. And and that list doesn't even begin to scratch the surface. Isn't that true? How often do we talk about December being a lost month because of everything we have going on, because of the busyness of it? And if we're not careful, there's a very good chance that if we're left to the busyness of this Christmas season, that we're going to miss everything that actually matters. We could miss seeing that God has acted in a surprising way right in our very midst. And if Zechariah's story warns us of anything, it's that God doesn't want us to miss the significance of what he's done by sending his son Jesus. So what do we need to do? How shall we break out of the rut of our busyness? Well, if you haven't guessed it yet, I would submit that at least a partial answer lies in the discipline of silence. That's right. This Christmas, if you want to hear from God, you first need to be silent. This Christmas, if you need to hear from God or you want to hear from God, you first need to be silent. Oh, and believe me, I'm well aware of the irony of me preaching this particular message. If you know me at all, then you know that being silent and not talking is my constant struggle. I mean, even just last Sunday after service, Bill, he had his coat on, he had his bag, he was trying to get out the door to spend a nice afternoon with his lovely wife and child, but he couldn't. You know why? Because I kept saying to him, oh, wait, just one more thing. Oh, no, no, wait, just one more thing. And, and, and Rachel called, and that, that broke me out of the, uh, the, the, the incredible amount of words that I was just throwing at Bill. And I said to her, I said, or I, mean, I said to Bill, I said, tell her, it's my fault. I just wouldn't stop saying words to you. <laughs> you know, that saying words, all of the students, anyone that spent any time with me is like, yes, that is Paul's problem, saying words. And so believe me, I am going to be applying this to myself this Christmas season. If I want to hear God, if you want to hear God this Christmas season, then we first need to be silent. We first need to be silent. That's the last word any of us would probably use to describe the month of December, isn't it? Silence. I think we need to press into it. But maybe you're sitting here this morning and you're a bit skeptical. Silence? Be silent? How do I even do that? Do I just like sit there and don't do anything? Well, here's what I'm going to encourage each of you to do this week. This week. At the top of the service, Bill mentioned these, the open here readings. We provide these for you every month and the bookmarks, like he said, are in the back. And we also, as as Bill said, have them online, openherebible.com. And this week, I'm challenging and encouraging you to pick one of the passages, and then here's where it gets really crazy. Read the passage and then spend 30 full minutes sitting in silence, reflecting and thinking about what you've read in uh, in God's word. You know, don't plan out your week, don't decide what you're going to have for lunch, and, and don't make your Christmas wish list on Amazon. I mean, really listen and be silent. Is that going to be hard? 
I mean, you bet. I mean, some of you may even struggle to find 30 minutes alone to do this. If you're a young mother or father who works at home watching the kiddos, you're thinking right now, I can't even find 15 minutes to take a shower by myself. How the heck am I going to find 30 minutes to just be silent? And if that's you, if you feel like, like, man, I couldn't even do this. I've got the kiddos or I've just got so much going on. Well, to parents, I would say tag team this. You know, take the kids so that the other can go and, and actually do this and actually practice this. And if you're sitting here thinking, I actually don't know if I have 30 seconds or 30 minutes, and I don't know if it has to do with the kids, I just have a really busy week, I would challenge that. I think all of us can find 30 minutes to do this, and that includes me. I mean, I'm going to practice this, I'm going to give it a whirl this week, and I fully expect to lose focus about two or 300 times. Because this is, this is hard, right? We're not used to this. We're inundated with noise. We're inundated with noise. But we need to turn off the music. We need to, to turn off our cell phones. We need to turn off the television. We need to be silent so that God can get a word in edgewise. I'm encouraging you to do this this week, and I'm encouraging you to be intentional about it. You're not going to drift into this. You're not going to accidentally be silent and reflect upon what God has done. Put it on your calendar. Plan it. Tell people that you're going to do it. Really commit to this. And my prayer for each of you is that God would use this set-aside time of silence to break in and free you from your rut, the rut of the busyness of this Christmas season. Remember, this Christmas season, if you want to hear God, you first need to be silent. Well, our story in Luke 1 ends with a mute Zechariah going home from his time, serving at the temple. He and Elizabeth conceive a son just as Gabriel promised. For nine months, Zechariah waits in silence for the birth of his son, contemplating the goodness of the Lord. And when the day comes, when John the Baptist is born, listen to the first words out of Zechariah's mouth from Luke 1.68. Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people. You see, then and only then, after Zechariah's routine is broken and he is forced to be silent, he gets it. Only after his routine and busyness are set aside can he begin to see the unbelievable and surprising way in which God is intervening on behalf of the world. This week, if you heed my encouragement and embrace silence, I think you'll find it to be a valuable space where we can remember who God is and what he's done for us. And this is what I think you'll hear. God has already acted for you. God loves you deeply. God would do anything, anything to be with you. God even became a human for you, humbling himself. God lived a perfect life. And then God died the death we deserved to give us the life that we could never earn. God rose again, and he is coming again to bring a home to his people forever. And God did all that for us for you. And it all started at Christmas when God acted in the most surprising way of all. Are you ready for God to act? 
Are you expecting him to be consistently surprising? This week, take a moment to be silent and see what he has to say. Would you pray with me? Dear Father in heaven, thank you for acting on our behalf. Thank you for your son, Jesus, who came to live and die so that we do not have to die the death that we deserved. I pray all this in your name. Amen. Well, I figured today I should put my money where my mouth is. And as I've already said, I'm going to practice the 30 minutes this week, but I thought we might just start with an extended period of silence right now. So before we do communion, I'm going to give us about a minute, just longer than we normally have silence in our service, to really consider what the Advent season means. So let's enter into this time of silence and reflection. <laughs> 